You found this podcast probably because you know a little bit about our ministry called Time of Grace and our passion about connecting people to God through all kinds of media. Well, did you know that we do a lot more besides just television and podcasting? If you check out our website, timeofgrace.org, you're going to find tons of ways to learn about the good news of Jesus, from daily written devotions to daily video devotions, tons of podcasts, blogs, our Bible basic series called Bible Breath, and books and books and resources and more resources to help you in your walk with God. So if you're interested in any of that, just go to timeofgrace.org. When it comes to truth, like mathematics, there are there's only one way to be right, but many ways to be wrong. Or to quote a Christian pastor, he said there are an infinity of angles at which one falls, but only one at which one stands. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Now that's not popular in our day and age. Many people, including some Christians, uh, have the belief that there are many paths to God. Now please understand that when, when I say, and when we say on the basis of scripture, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, I am not saying that, uh, that absolutely everything is wrong in every other religion. Uh, the truth is, uh, the Jewish faith teaches that God is one, uh, and so do Christians. Uh, the, the Muslim faith teaches that, that God is holy, and so do Christians. Uh, Mormonism teaches, uh, encourages its followers to follow the golden rule, and, and, and so do Christians. There are truths that we can all come to on the basis of the natural knowledge of God um, that, are, that are right. At the same time, those truths that we come to on the basis of the natural knowledge of God, of what we all know by nature, um, they aren't the saving truths. Um, they aren't the ones that, that save us eternally and rescue us eternally. On that point, Christianity differs from every other world religion. You see, God is holy and he's unapproachable. When Isaiah the prophet got to see a God in his holiness on his throne, do you know what his reaction was? It wasn't awe and praise. It was terror. Isaiah said, woe is me. I, I, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. He thought he was going to die. Now that, that reaction to us as New Testament Christians seems maybe a little bit, little bit, uh, a little bit wrong, Right? Because we think of God and we think of Jesus holding the little lamb in his arms because God is love and that's absolutely true. But God is also holy. God told Moses, uh, you can't see my face for no one can see me and live. We sometimes think that, that intimacy God, with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. But there can be nothing amazing about grace unless there's something fearful about holiness. I cannot approach God on my own. I need a mediator to get to God. I, I, I need a, a mediator, not my own best attempts. I need a savior. And so God provided one. Jesus came into this world to show us who God is. Jesus showed us that God is holy and just by requiring his payment for sin on the cross. Every sin of yours and mine paid for. But he also so, showed that God is love because he suffered that payment. Not you and me. And when Jesus did die on that cross, that temple curtain in the temple that separated us from God's presence, that was ripped down from top to bottom, torn in two. And why? Because your sins are forgiven. Because through Jesus, you can approach God. He is your mediator. In fact, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so are there many paths to God? Um, no. 
Christianity is exclusive in how we get to God. But that's the thing about truth. Um, there is only one, right? If, if God willing, uh, we ever find the cure for cancer or the exact center of the universe, will it turn out that everybody was right? <laughs> no. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Christianity is exclusive in how we get to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But did you catch it? The world. Christianity is totally inclusive in who can come to God. It includes you, it includes me, it includes everyone you know. This week we're dealing with um, objections that some people have when it comes to Christianity. I once saw an interview with the atheist Richard Dawkins and um, in the interview uh, Dawkins said something along the lines of that it is liberating to free yourself from the primitive superstition of the idea of God. And when the interviewer asked Dawkins, well, okay, let's say there is a God, what if you meet him one day, what would you say? Uh, Dawkins quoted someone else and said, sir, I would say, sir, uh, why did you take such great pains to hide yourself? C.S. Lewis actually uh, took on that question. He said, to, to look out at creation and say, uh, where is God, I don't see him, is a little like taking a look at a Shakespeare play and reading a Shakespeare play and then asking, now, where's Shakespeare, which one is he? <laughs> the answer is, he is all over that play, right? Without him, there is no play. The same is true when it comes to looking out at creation and saying, where is God? Well, he's everywhere. His fingerprints are all over creation. Without him, there is no creation. The, the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. But Dawkins is one who thinks that religion is a crutch for the weak. That means that he and others who think like him think themselves Strong? The truth is, Christianity is the only belief system that answers all of my, my greatest needs. I mean, what do you do with the crushing guilt you feel from past failures? If death is the end, then why fear it at all? Well, it's because deep down, we know that we have to answer for our sin. Deep down, we know that death is not natural and death is not the end. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in our hearts. Sometimes we try to just ignore the problem and hope it goes away. And, and, and God says in Romans 1, that's exactly what some people do. They try to suppress that knowledge of God. They try to suppress their weakness. The truth is, is that Jesus did reveal himself in this world. He lived a life that people took notice of. He did miracles that no man could do. And Jesus healed people. He, he raised the dead. He even raised himself from the dead. It's interesting that as you look at the pages of Scripture and see all the ways that God broke into this world and showed himself with power, you know, you think of like the ten plagues um, bringing the Israelites out of Egypt or the, the splitting of the water of the Red Sea so Israel passed safely through or the crumbling of the walls of Jericho so that Israel could take over Jericho or, or God sending fire to consume Elijah's sacrifice on Mount Carmel or even when God sent his only son into this world. In all those ways that God showed himself, those displays of power, it really didn't result in mass conversions. Uh, Jesus even said as much when in, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. He said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to the word of God, well, then they're not even going to listen if somebody rises from the dead. No, the only thing that really changes heart is seeing Jesus, the one with all power, on the cross displaying his greatest strength, the power not to come down. 
the power to allow himself to be weak for us. You see, there is some truth in that adage that Christianity is for the weak. I am weak on my own. I need a savior from sin. I need an answer for death, and no human being on the face of this earth has ever been able to give me those answers. That's why I need a savior who lived perfectly for me and who died on the cross to take away my sins, but then rose again and walked out of that grave so that one day, I will too. If that means that I'm weak, then so be it. If I have to rely on my Savior, as the Apostle Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I don't think I can ever forgive and forget. Have you ever been there? When somebody hurts you so badly that you don't know how you can get past it, how will I ever forgive him for what he did? How will I ever forget what she did to me? If you find yourself in that position, then I think there are three things that are helpful to remember. Um, first of all, we want to understand uh, what forgiveness is and maybe what it's not. Uh, forgiveness does not mean that, that it was okay what somebody did to you. That's not what you're saying. Uh, even if the most common thing we say when somebody sins against us and says, I'm sorry, very often we'll say, that's okay. It's okay. Does that mean that I can do that thing to you again? Absolutely not, right? Um, nor does forgiveness mean that there are no repercussions for someone's actions. Um, if, if I walk through a doorway and, and you punch me each time I walk through and I walk through nine times and nine times you punch me and nine times I say I forgive you, does that mean, does that forgiveness mean that I need to walk through that door a tenth time? No, sometimes there are repercussions for sin. No, forgiveness, literally, it means to send away. And that's, that's what you're doing with someone's sin. You're saying, I'm going to send it away. You're giving up the right to hurt someone for hurting you. You're, you're taking off the judge's robe. You're hanging it up and you're leaving judgment to whom it properly belongs to God. You see, forgiveness is an act of the will, not an act of emotion. The second thing I think we need to keep in mind is the perspective of Jesus' forgiveness. We are always going to struggle to forgive um, when we forget how much Jesus has forgiven us. So just think of this. How many times a day do you sin? Go ahead, be conservative in the number if you'd like. Now multiply that by a lifetime of days. How many sins did you come up with? Is it safe to say that that number is exponentially more um, than the amount of sins that, that you've committed or that, that someone has committed against you. Um, and yet, what did Jesus do with all of those sins? It was the worst day in human history. Uh, the best possible person, Jesus, was treated in the worst possible way. Uh, Jesus was whipped with a cat of nine tails. That's a, that's a handle with nine straps of leather on it with little bits of metal and bone at the end to tear flesh. He was then forced to carry his own instrument of torture, the cross, to the hill where he'd be crucified until he broke down. And then he was hung up on that cross to suffocate to death. But that wasn't his worst pain. His worst pain was suffering the separation from God by suffering hell on that cross for every sin of thought, word, and deed that we've ever committed. That's what Jesus has done with your sin. Your sin is completely forgiven. That's what enables us to now forgive others. And I think the third point to remember is this one, that we can functionally forget. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, sometimes people think, well, I, I don't know if I can ever forget it. Uh, it reminds me of a story of a, a pastor 
who had committed a sin in his past, and it was a, it was a, a grave sin, and, and, and yet he repented, but he didn't feel that peace of forgiveness. He still carried around guilt. And he had this woman in his parish who said, claimed to have like, conversations with Jesus, and so he was a little skeptical, and he said to her, all right, tell you what, the next time that you talk to Jesus, I want you to ask him, what sin did your pastor commit while he was at the seminary? And so the woman agreed, and a, and a few days later, they saw each other again, and the pastor said, did you talk to Jesus? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, did you ask what sin I committed? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, what did he say? And she replied, he said, I don't remember. I don't remember. Uh, does God forgive and forget? Well, uh, I, I suppose God is omniscient, and so he can't forget anything, but what he does is something even more powerful still. He chooses not to remember our sin. This is what Isaiah says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions and remembers your sins no more. He chooses not to call it to mind. No one will be able to remind Jesus of something he's chosen to forget. He doesn't call your sin to mind ever. And so can we forgive and forget? Well, I suppose we may not ever be able to physically forget, you know, or mentally forget the, the pain that somebody caused, but we can functionally forgive and forget, right? Remembering how God is forgetful when it comes to our sins, we can show that to the other people in our lives. Um, we can treat them as though that sin never happened. But far from saying that sin didn't, didn't hurt, you're actually just showing what Jesus has done for that sin or with that sin. He forgives it. The church has done horrible things in the past 2,000 years. Uh, this is an objection I hear from time to time and uh, understand that there's a difference that scripture makes a distinguishing between um, the body of all believers in Christ, that invisible body, and uh, the physical buildings and organizations that bear the name of Christ. If you're talking about that latter, those physical churches, then I agree with you and I condemn those actions with you. The, the, the crusades and the, the quest for earthly power and the burning of heretics and the Spanish Inquisition and, um, and, and, and witch hunts and, and pedophile priests or even just the, just the personal hurt that someone has done to you that calls themselves a Christian. It's all horrible. It's all wrong. And it's all sad. Jesus warned us that this would happen. He said through the Apostle John, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. Jesus said something that ought to make every Christian introspective. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The evil done in Jesus' name is not an expression of the Christian philosophy, but a betrayal of it. When people have done things in Jesus' name that are against what Jesus teaches, they betray the Christian faith. Uh, what religious founder died with the words of Jesus on their lips? Father, forgive them, and that for his crucifiers. St. Augustine was right when he said that no philosophy can be properly judged by its abuse. Understand what he's saying there. He's, he's saying it's not fair to dismiss Christianity because there are people who call themselves Christians who, who betray um, what Jesus says. Jesus said things like, love your enemies, um, do good to those who hate you, pray for everyone. Uh, 
just because people do evil things in Jesus' name actually says very little about Jesus, but it says everything about us and our hearts. And not just Christian hearts, but all hearts. Um, the truth is, when you become a Christian, that desire inside of you to sin that we call the sinful nature, that doesn't just go away. But we do have the answer to it. Every day a Christian will want to turn away from their sin and look to Jesus for forgiveness. And this is something we do every single day until that day when that desire to sin leaves us when we're finally in heaven. The truth is the Christian church is at its best when it's proclaiming what Jesus has done and then try to reflect that love. This is what Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. After all, look what Jesus did for us. Knowing everything that was going to happen to him, he still walked into the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed. He prayed in that garden knowing that soon footsteps of soldiers were coming to do unspeakable harm to him. And then they arrived as if on cue. And Jesus went up to them and he just said, who is it you're looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replied, I am he. And when he did... He showed who was in control. All of the soldiers fell backward to the ground at the sight of the Son of God. And then they came back to their feet um, and they asked again and Jesus gave them a command. He said, you're going to let these disciples go because Jesus was the one in control. But then Peter did something, well, good intention but incredibly misguided. He took out his sword and he cut off uh, one of the soldiers' ears. His name was Malchus. Please listen very carefully to what Jesus says next. Put your sword away. Enough of this. And then Jesus reached out and he healed Malchus's ear. You see, Jesus could do more in the war against the evil inside of our hearts by lying on his back on a piece of wood on the cross than all the angel armies with drawn swords put together. This Savior and this message are what Christianity is all about. This week, we're looking at questions that people struggle with. Um, Deuteronomy 6 says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In fact, Jesus uh, quoted that passage when he was being tempted by the devil in the desert. And so at first blush, our question for today almost sounds natural. Why does God demand worship? Is it that God's love language is uh, words of affirmation? You know, is God uh, so insecure that he needs our worship and praise? Well, of course not. That, that's not the reason. Um, and if we think that way, then we miss the point of worship. You see, worship isn't so much our gift to God, it's God's gift to us. Now, no one likes getting an anonymous gift. Okay, maybe that's going too far. Uh, but when we get an anonymous gift, everyone knows that, that ache that you feel in not being able to thank the person who gave it to you. You see, um, thanks is, is not just for the one receiving it, but it also helps the one who's giving it. In a way, it, it completes um, the act of giving. Now, if you're one of those people who thinks that the idea of God demanding worship and then his people worshiping him as being weird, then please understand what worship is. Um, worship it, it comes from uh, the old Anglo-Saxon word, Worth scribe, and you can you can hear the definition right in there. Um, it's it's ascribing worth, uh, and so this is what we do when we worship. We we describe what something is worth to us, and we do it all the time, and we do it almost unconsciously. 
I mean, just try to go to the Grand Canyon and stand there with your, your arms crossed and, and shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, I don't see what the big deal is. I guarantee anyone who's ever been to the Grand Canyon will come up to you and say, you know what, you're the weird one, right? Um, we, we, when we um, see the birth of our child, uh, how can we not cry tears of joy? If you get the, the, the gift of your dreams at Christmas, who wouldn't shout out, oh my goodness, thank you, right? It comes unconsciously and unstoppably off of our lips. Uh, just look at the pages of Scripture and see what's going on there. The, the, the writers are, are pouring out onto the page praise that just comes so naturally to them. The psalmist says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, another psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. And then Isaiah the prophet, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things. They don't do it because they're supposed to. They do it because they see God. But why does God demand worship? Well, because he knows that if we're not worshiping, we're not really seeing him. That God made us for worship and he knows that when we're not, um, that our own, our own selfishness will make us miserable. I think of the woman, the sinful woman, who went and found Jesus having dinner at a Pharisee's house and she went up to him and she started crying tears of thankfulness over Jesus' feet and she poured expensive perfume on him. Now, no one forced her to do that, but she had to do it. The one who is forgiven little loves little, but the one who's forgiven much loves much. That sinful woman, yes, saw her sinfulness, but she also looked at Jesus and she saw her Savior. When we look at ourselves, yes, we see, all we see is sinfulness. But look at Jesus, really look at him, and I bet you can't look away. Back before time began, Jesus thought about you. He chose you to be his own. And he knew that the only way to get you was to come and get you himself. And so Jesus entered into this world. Watch Jesus live that perfect life that God required for you and for me. He did that for you. Watch Jesus suffer and bleed and die on the cross. He did that for you. Watch Jesus rise from the dead and, 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 and make that promise that you will rise from the dead too. Wow, Jesus took you from an eternity in hell to an eternity in heaven. Wow, it, it turns out that worship isn't so much a demand. It's all I want to do.